This Much We Know is a podcast offering an honest and informative perspective of the realities and motivations of setting up a social enterprise. We'll be joined by guest social entrepreneurs and charity leaders whose trading models work to end homelessness. We'll be sharing their stories, tips, and of course, their facepalm moments. Welcome to another episode of This Much We Know. Today we are joined by Aishita Ranjan from Good Finance and Spark & Co. Aishita, welcome. Hi. If you can tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your roles, particularly within the social enterprise space. Hi everyone, my name's Ishita and I wear two hats in my day-to-day life. I am the founder and director of a community interest company called Spark & Co., which provides uh, support to vulnerable racialized people in the UK alongside uh, research and consultancy for organisations building their uh, anti-racism strategies. I'm also the senior project manager over at Good Finance, which uh, is supported by Big Society Capital and Access Foundation. And the mission of Good Finance is to be the trusted um, place for charities and social enterprises navigating social investment. So wearing two uh, very uh, different hats, a lot of my time is spent thinking about the world of finance and social investment, um, and then the rest of my time is spent um, running a community interest company. Fantastic. Love it. So I guess I'm now now thinking, oh, where do we start with our questions? Should we go for good finance and then talk? We'd love to know more about Spark & Co. And I think it's brilliant that we've got somebody who's working in both, yeah, the, fi- yeah. the social finance part of it, but also in the effectively yeah running your own enterprise and doing that as well it's brilliant to have somebody doing both I guess a personal question to start us off really what led you into this sort of line of work how did you get involved in social investment and then obviously Spark and Co after that that's that's a really good question actually because I remember when I first got my job at Good Finance um, and everyone around me was like no one sets out to work in social investment and I was like wrong <laughs> that's definitely what I wanted to do and it for me it started a really long time ago um so when I was at university I was part of this global society called Enactus, and it's an American program. So, yeah, I mean, you're nodding, so it sounds like you've heard of it. But I, I yeah, know, like, yeah, like, I love Enactus. I think I, I wish I knew about it when I was at uni. Oh yeah, a lot. I mean, a lot of people now in the sector will say that to me when I said I did it. Um, but there's also some great social entrepreneurs in the sector that came from an Enactus um, background. So. I did it when I was at university and um, I just enjoyed it way more than my degree. So I was doing a law and business degree um, and I was probably also spending like 20, 30 hours a week doing inactive stuff because I just found it so interesting. And it was like, you know, a lot of like being at university is quite academic, is quite like sat in in lecture theatres and in notes and textbooks. And um, inactive was just very real. It was very about going out and being in the community and meeting people and actually doing stuff and so I think I was like 19 years old when I decided that I wanted to work in the social enterprise sector and then throughout my time running Enactus and then I actually went on to work for Enactus UK for two years when I graduated uni and one of the things that always really frustrated me was charities and social enterprises and their challenges with fundraising and and raising money because it I just it really frustrated me because I'd see so many like amazing people and amazing organizations really struggle to make their work sustainable or really struggle to grow their work because they just couldn't they just couldn't like fundraise or raise money in a sustainable way um and so I actually then went on to do a master's it was very niche master's in um grant writing philanthropy and social investment 
because that was like for, for me that was like finance was a really important tool to help like charities and social enterprises grow um which is how I then ultimately ended up at good finance amazing I don't think I've ever heard such a deliberate story into the social sector. <laughs> yeah, most of us slide into it by mistake. When I was at uni, I definitely did slide into it by mistake because I was doing a law and business degree and I thought I was going to be a corporate lawyer. And there's a, mm. there's a lot of difference between what I'm doing now and being a corporate lawyer. So yeah. I always feel like a halfway through uni kind of remember having this conversation with my parents and being like, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, literally like yeah I just I kind of like realized just early on that it wasn't it wasn't going to suit me and then I just kind of landed into this thing that I really loved so yeah it was like deliberate from the point where I realized but up mm. until then I did completely slide into it I think yeah Fantastic. brilliant and it's great to have another Anactus alumni um, with us we had Julius Ibrahim so, you know the, it's such a small sector isn't it it's so funny it's when a we small sector so I actually knew Julius when he was uh, in in the team when he was in his like first first second year of university and I think oh, I was amazing. working for actors then yeah yeah he's brilliant it's quite nice to have different yeah different people from different parts of yeah the social enterprise world on with us it's, yeah really good fantastic so what does it look like what does right now what does day-to-day work look like in terms of social investment and good finance it's a really good question so so the context for good finance right is that we are um supported and funded by big society capital and access but we are an independent and an autonomous um platform um, and so day to day is we are, I would describe us as kind of like a startup. Um, it's sort of Annie, there's, there's two of us on the good finance team and myself and the project manager and Annie who looks after um, the comms and content. And, you know, we've been around since 2017. So we've got like a, a sense of like a really clear sense of our, our mission and how we're striving to, to reach it. But there's two of us. So it is very like hands on deck we're very collaborative in the way in the way that we work so a lot of our day-to-day is is talking to partners and working with partners it's a lot of like stakeholder management stakeholder relationship um our big goal at the moment is um the our next kind of website target is to reach half a million users so we're somewhere around like 380 uh, thousand users um so that's kind of our day-to-day is a lot of like where are we with the numbers how are they looking are we able to hit that next goal um how are our partners doing how's our content doing a lot of focus in the last couple of months as well on diversity and inclusion and making our work more accessible and more inclusive so a lot of yeah diff- different projects and programs on day-to-day awesome half a million people Oh, half an hour. It's huge, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. Considering when I first started in my first year, our goal was to reach 100,000 users. And that wow. was a really big deal for us to reach 100,000 users. Um, but something that we have seen is our traffic has really gone up um, over the course of the pandemic. And mm. there's lots of reasons. And if I were going to speculate, I would say... I would guess maybe it's because a lot of organisations are really being forced to consider their financial sustainability and their financial resilience because of the pandemic. And it's making people look at different tools like social investment. So typically um, audiences and people that that wouldn't have heard of it, wouldn't have considered it, um, I think uh, are doing their research because the pandemic's put quite a financial strain on the sector, I think. Yeah, I'd agree. I think that 
you know, the trust and grants landscape at the moment is fairly bleak. There's been a huge amount of changes in local authority contracts, you know, that kind of traded income that people have been relying on isn't necessarily there anymore. Uh, people are looking for different different ways to do to do old things, um, which is challenging. I also think there's a higher interest in social investment because now it's been it's more it's becoming more of a sort of household name in organizations, you know, it's it's talked about board meetings, it's it's an option that's that's being seen more. And because of that, there's some really great examples of how it's worked for people. And so people can see that, you know, it's it's not as scary. You know, the 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 risk factor isn't isn't so much as unknown now. Yeah, of course. And I, and I think on the thing of it not being as scary is, uh, you know, when I first started at Kid Finance, a lot of the stories that I would hear were of organisations taking on sort of 10 million, 11 million, kind of these really established um, organisations taking on these really significant sums, um, which were scary, but you know, actually something that I find really interesting is that the average first time demand for social investment is um around fifty thousand um, pounds. Yeah. and I think that's really interesting. And and I think that there are lots of sort of smaller organizations um that are considering it and it's not necessarily all about the big numbers and, and the millions, you know, I think some of the smaller sounds like there's a great organisation called Creative Optimistic Visions and the first time they took on social investment it was £19,000 and it, it was to help the founder um, essentially add more resource and she was a sole founder so that she could add more resource and just grow the organisation and I think that's also you know really important to talk about those small sums as well because that does make it kind of more accessible to so many so many social entrepreneurs and charities. Yeah definitely I think we Homeless Think has our um, portfolio, as you know, of, of social investments. And, and a large amount of those were, you know, sort of 40, 50, 60,000 yeah. pounds for staff capacity, particularly for business development posts or fundraising. Yes, yeah, Simon is working with, with one of our organisations at the moment, which, which does sort of similar things. And, and you can utilise social investment. I think people think that it has to be, you know, asset acquisition <laughs> as the kind of yeah stigma no stereotype yeah no I get it I think and I think (laughs) it's it's kind of just like that old school um yeah I guess kind of like a bit of a hangover that that, that's what finance or investment is is used for but actually so much of the time is working capital um is Mm. a lot of the demand I think is for working capital yeah we've had a few sort of really snazzy ideas as well people have taken it to sort of from a housing development perspective so they've bought purchased a house renovated it remortgaged it and took out their deposit again to buy multiple properties that they're then using for sustainable housing for their beneficiaries um and you know it's starting with twelve thousand pounds for a deposit so it's you know really small sums but they've now got portfolios of eight to ten houses that they're able to use for accommodation so you know the impact is huge and and that's really interesting right because there's so much intentionality behind that like to be able to think that long term uh, i think that's Mm. that's kind of awesome yeah, it's that yeah. catalyst bit. I think that's the biggest misunderstanding around social investment sometimes, actually, is yeah. like it's the catalyst to go and yeah, achieve some real big impact stuff. But you're right, I think there was people that thought, oh yes, for like, yeah, only if you can borrow a million pounds sort of thing. Yeah. Rather than those smaller sums like you like you sort of mentioned. And I think there's other things like, you know, the the, the cost of capital and repayment and all of that kind of stuff and, and, and the risk attached to it that can be deterrent for people as well, which is which is totally understandable to some level because if you compare it against grant money, which is benevolent and you don't have to pay back, in, in an ideal world, we'd want everyone to be able to access all of the grant money, but it's not an ideal world, is it? And so I think there's like 
some element of risk attached to social investment, which sometimes causes hesitation, which I, I understand, but I do also think that risk appetites and attitudes are, are changing in, in the sector. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the, the really interesting things that we're trying to look at the moment with, with our involvement in social investment is whether the act of taking on social investment or readdressing your approach to risk has secondary effects on organisations. Mm. So if you're if you're more open to taking risks from a funding perspective, are you then more open to being more innovative in the way that you you know service design, etc.? That's really interesting because it's uh, so much of risk is about mindset, right? And if you have the mindset to take on financial risk, does that then open you up to different areas of innovating? And I can imagine that there that there definitely would be a, a link between the two. I think. Yeah, something that we saw during the pandemic was so many organisations pivot and be innovative in the way that they were responding. And it was a lot of organisations that had taken on social investment. But I would love to know. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll try and find out. <laughs> if you could, please, Matthew. Yes, that would, absolutely. That's my action from today. That'll um, be the follow-up episode that we'll have to go for. Yeah. It's really, yeah, really interesting. I'm we will plug the Good Finance website at the end, but I've got it on the screen here running, actually, and I was looking at it earlier on today. It's, it's brilliant. There's loads of good stuff. Um, oh, thank you. But the other interesting thing is I've looked at it loads over the years, and Have it's you? really nice to meet the people behind it. <laughs> and, and I appreciate probably you've put an awful a lot of effort and time and real skill has gone into making it that good. You know, you don't get that many users overnight. So, I'm, yeah, very yeah, impressed. It's been very um, consistent. I'd say I think and and something that like is really important to us is to be very user-led and for us that means kind of centering charities and social enterprises on everything that we do with the website and the content and events and all of the rest of it over and above like what investors want or what we as a team think that we should be doing Um, Mm and for us it's consistently kind of holding ourselves accountable to listening to what charities and social enterprises are telling us um, and there's loads more stuff that we need to do and there's loads of stuff that needs to be improved on the website. It's always going to be the case, but I'm really proud of the fact that it's so kind of drilled into drilled into everything that we do is mm. do our users want that? Do our users want that? It's so intuitive as well. Like when you're going through it, it it is answering the questions as you go along. Uh, we use it a lot working with our enterprise development groups and our social investment portfolio and, you know, signposting is, you know, that's the place to go and look. Oh, um, I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> I promise that I'm not being forced to say this. Listeners. <laughs> it's really nice to like hear from people that use the website and use it in like different ways to, to how we use it. But yeah, that like kind of journey across the top is kind of designed based on uh, your understanding level of social investment. So mm-hmm. starting on one side of the screen, we assume you know nothing, but hopefully by the time you get to the end you're feeling really equipped um to, to go off and yeah. consider social investment i think it's i think it's fab i wouldn't i wanted to touch on one of the things you mentioned earlier um around how to sort of be more accessible um and the question around diversity in the sector particularly around social finance social investment obviously we're you know everyone's kind of inward looking at the moment trying to see how we can change the way that we write the language around social finance is complicated I remember starting off in the sector and the acronyms I was like what what on earth does any of this mean Um, so it isn't necessarily that accessible and we're we're on a journey as a sector aren't we to to getting better what what are your kind of key initiatives or key concerns that you see at the moment yeah I mean you're right we we are on a journey as a sector um and sometimes that journey can be frustrating because sometimes I think why are we yet but I think 
you know, for us, it's been, to some extent, I think we were one step ahead because we are so user-led. And so some of the accessibility issues and the diversity issues were things that users were flagging um, with us. And so we've always tried to be responsive to that. But I think what we have really taken stock of in the past couple of years is is the accessibility to social investment itself, um, which is still a big challenge. So, you know, if you kind of look at how marginalised entrepreneurs are accessing it or you know, people with disabilities, um, th- there are big, big gaps in, in funding and, and reaching those people. So two kind of main sort of programmes that we have at the moment trying to address some of those challenges. One is addressing imbalance, um, which is actually hugely supported by the social sector engagement team at Big Society Capital, um, run by one of my colleagues, Olivia, um, and addressing imbalance uh, partners with different sort of membership and infrastructure organisations that have reach and engagement with marginalised um, charity and, and social enterprise leaders. Um, and it is about sort of addressing the, the gap um, and so addressing imbalance as a programme and um, partners with, with these different organisations and sort of aims to bring social investment um, as a topic to the forefront through sort of events and um, learning sessions, etc. Um, so like, so, you know, some of the partners um, from last year include organisations like the Entrepreneurial Refugee Network. There's, there's lots of different um, partners and we're kind of doing version uh, two this year. And that is really about addressing the issue on what we would typically call the demand side. Um, so looking at kind of where those gaps in knowledge and accessibility are for uh, charities and social enterprises um, and really connecting them to, to the knowledge, but also connecting them to the right people, the right organisations, the right investors, um, making sure they know about things like the fund directory, but also that they have connections to the wider support and infrastructure that they need. And then on a different level, and this is a new programme that we've just um, launched, is called Investment Committees of the Future. And this is about looking at diversity and inclusion um, at a very different level in the system, um, which is at that investment committee level where decisions are being made. And something that we are really cognizant of is that um, investment committees in the sector are not particularly diverse and they're not necessarily reflective of, of, of the UK population. And so one of our kind of longer term missions is is to improve um, opportunities for people to get onto investment committees. Um, so people that have frontline experience, people that have lived experience, um, equipping them to with, with the skills and the knowledge that they need to bring their skills, experiences, perspectives onto investment committees in in the future, um, hence hence the hence the name. So it will be sort of um, an online learning program and a peer support network. Um, and what we're really hoping to do is to be able to kind of equip the the future generation of investment committee members um, with the skills that they need. Because I think there is a lot of kind of just fear around being on an investment committee and a lot of you know for me personally it's something that I would love to do but I look at them now and I think I don't know how to read board papers and I'm not from a finance background and these numbers are really stressing me out so I think you know just helping people kind of know that they can do it it will be a big Mm. part of investment committees that is so exciting I can't wait to hear more about what happens with this I think you yeah I mean completely what's needed there is a, a risk of, sort of tokenistic roles within this. And if people are underprepared, you are setting up to fail. I think sure. um, I sit on the charity board and, and 
have other involvement and, and obviously we do sort of investment panels and grants panels and it's it's very easy if you're if you're unsure of what's what's going on or you you don't think you're quite up to it with I don't know assessing financial management accounts or something um and not feeling like you can say it so you end up not sharing your opinion um which is really risky right you know the investment committee everyone needs to have a role and bring different challenges and challenge assumptions hold each other accountable um and if you're not informed you're not compared to do it very well no um absolutely and you know i've seen it sort of at big size capital and um they recently added um lisa hilda as an investment committee member um and i don't know if you know much about um lisa and a whole women's network but you know she's got this wealth of kind of frontline um experience and um just completely different perspective um that she brings but you wouldn't necessarily look at her cv and think oh investment committee member because mm-hmm. it's not like a particularly financial um kind of background um which was always my kind of i guess assumption or it was was the it was a lot of financy people but kind of just like the perspective and and the knowledge and and the challenge that she brings um it is is great and i think what i'd love to see is more investment committees where that's happening um mm. and and for me personally as well too one of my bugbears when we talk about things like diversity and inclusion is yeah we need to address it on the demand side right like we need to address it with charities and social enterprises and make sure that they have the skills and they're equipped and informed however if they are still existing in a system that is ultimately not able to support them what is the point like what is the point mm. of giving all of these amazing diverse and marginalized leaders and entrepreneurs that the skills and the toolkits to apply for social investment if ultimately at that system level social investors aren't able to invest into them or don't know how to invest into them or don't give them the opportunities that they need right like we we can't just be you know going to people and saying you know come apply for social investment we have to be making sure that at that like decision making level at that level that, that we're also addressing um the challenges around diversity yeah i think it's easy to think that it's an you know either we'll do system change first or then we'll do the sector f- first but actually it's it's a you know, bilineal relationship it needs to happen at the same time and there needs yeah. to be representation yeah it needs to be working at both ends doesn't it i feel yeah exactly like that's, that's, if it's not happening at the same time you're sort of working against yourself at either end aren't you of the thing but i think the thing about diversity is i want to see more progress <laughs> i think every time we've touched on social investment during this sort of funders season that we've been working on i've just yeah it makes me irritable um yeah. you know because we just want to move let's just get on with it no exactly um, you just um, you just want to move you, you do just want to get on with things and i think uh, and this is something that I find personally find really interesting right as someone that runs a social enterprise but also works somewhere like good finance the difference in pace um at at the two levels so I think my day-to-day at Spark is just very like quick and fast-paced and in contrast with that when we work with funders it's just a whole different world like we've had funding <laughs> applications where honestly from the point of expression of interest to, to getting money into the bank account has taken over a year um yeah and that kind of blows my mind because <clears throat> it's just like the disconnect between how these two different um sectors work is, <clears throat> is sometimes <clears throat> mind-boggling yes it's very yeah they move at completely different speeds in, in the sort of charity space sort of your you are looking at sort of one year, three years, but the social enterprise is so different because it has that business element. You are making quick decisions, you know, having to wait for a quarterly board meeting is 
you know you can't you have to, you have to act quicker than that and the funding for social enterprises is still piggybacking off the charity grant funding and it doesn't it doesn't quite we've not got there yet with, with the social enterprise funding I think no. there's some really good programs and it is happening but um yeah it is not at the same pace I, I totally agree Agreed, especially with social enterprises. I think there's a much wider understanding of how charities work and how they should be funded. But I think there is this kind of this this sort of spot where there's a lot of social enterprises that aren't fully ready to take on social investment. So they don't have like a very clear like income generation source yet. They don't have a very clear idea of how they would pay it back. However, they're also not like the right. Um, well, they don't tick all of the boxes for like charitable or grant funding. And if you exist in that space, where where do you go for funding? And I think you're right. We we are seeing like slowly but surely like some things responding to it. Um, definitely some of the work that Access does or the Enterprise mm. Development Program and stuff like that is is really important and is responding to that. Um, but uh, just more of it, please. Yeah, mm. agreed. <laughs> yeah, I think it is quite. I've worked with so many enterprises where they're just in a really tight spot, actually, because yeah, the grant funding world isn't open to them. And the only way to move, it's frustrating to watch from the sidelines with some of these organisations because I'm like, you're going to struggle for your first three years. It's going to be really hard work, really, yeah. really hard work. And then at three years, people are going to start wanting to fund you and be really interested. But yeah. those first three years are so difficult. So they many are. social entrepreneurs give up in those three years. I just think, like, how can we accelerate it so people go from month naught to six and be at year three at six months, if that makes sense. That's the, yeah. the thing that I'm sort of struggling with at the moment or trying to figure out it's like how can we yeah how can we accelerate how can we move these enterprises along more quickly you know um, what I, I don't think that we need to move it along quicker because I think the thing that people do really well is is learning those first couple of years there's so much that changes and there's so many pivots and, and understanding different aspects but I think there's just not the space to do that you know asking someone to risk their personal life their professional life you know it's there's for entrepreneurs going into it not only is is it like lonely and scary but it has real life consequences yeah and to to not fund that innovation and you know even if it doesn't work after a few years they've tried to do something amazing and that should be rewarded and supported you know it it, it shouldn't have to be a sacri- as much of a sacrifice as it is to try and do something good I, th- I mean I think you've both got some really good points it- on that like speaking from a personal perspective for me right so if I take my good finance hat off for a minute and and talk about Spark um set up Spark in March 2020 in response to the pandemic right so I remember being at my mum and dad's house my parents both doctors um looking at the news and thinking oh god this is going to have some bad consequences um and I remember thinking as well that the consequences are going to be very different for people from different ethnicities uh, my husband and I just sat and built what I would call like a minimal viable product. It was literally like this website. And all I'd done is we just scoured the internet and pulled together every resource that we could find that was targeted for people of different ethnicities. Um, so, you know, information that was really specific to your community or, or your ethnic group and kind of put it out in the world in Easter Monday. And I didn't think that much about it. And then when I went back online later, like the tweet had been retweeted like hundreds of times. And I was like, whoa, I went onto the website and we'd had something like 10,000 hits. And I was like, oh, God, we're like we are onto something. And and the National Lottery was doing kind of emergency response funding um, at this point. 
and one of their kind of um, priorities was uh, funding um, interventions and in, in systems that were um, kind of targeted at ethnic minority uh, people. And so we went through this very quick process with the National Lottery because it was emergency funding. And um, within like a month, we'd raised £120,000, which was staggering, right? So because I've worked in the sector for a really long time. And if you'd have told me like five years ago that I'd be able to do that in a month, I would not have believed you. And so that £120,000 saw us through our first like 18 months of rapid COVID response work. But at the end of that 18 months, when kind of that crisis period of the pandemic was over, funders weren't as interested in funding that kind of rapid response stuff. And suddenly, you know, we'd had this big wave of interest in anti-racism and Black Lives Matter had happened. But actually, 18 months on, funders were still really dragging their feet on on funding it. And at that point, to, to your point, Simon, about kind of the first three years being really hard, from that 18 month point, the, the couple of months that followed were just the most challenging. They're in, they're, I wanted to quit so many times because I was like, this is brutal. Like we were doing applications around the clock. We were getting, there was literally funders where we had to chase just to get responses to say you'd been rejected. They're, they're, they're funders that like, you know, had these big kind of anti-racism statements on their website but actually it took them over six months to tell us that we'd been rejected or, you know, organisations where it, they were so unclear on their own strategy on anti-racism or supporting kind of marginalised founders, as it were, that, you know, we, we were getting nowhere with them. And it was so frustrating because the day in, day out for us was seeing the impact that it was having on our community and like seeing stuff like, you know, the rising cost of living and people really struggling to pay bills and, you know, everything had gone online, but actually, if you didn't have access to the internet, if you didn't have a phone, if you didn't have a laptop, it was a really challenging world for you. And just kind of that period of not being able to respond to that. And I think that's actually what really pushed us to start doing kind of our income generation work. So in the past year, we've kind of, you know, we've been working with organisations like Mind and Macmillan and supporting them develop their anti-racism strategies. Um, And a huge part of that has you know, that kind of push. And, and I always knew that I wanted Spark & Co to generate its own revenue because I come from that kind of inactive social enterprise background. So I was never going to let it be 100% grant reliant. But actually, you know, being in, in it where you are raising grant funding, you're doing client work and you're doing your community facing programs and the rest of your life. And at the same time, like, I was also working at Good Finance. Um, I was trying to buy a house. I just got married. And your point, Murphy, on like the real life implications, like I have never been so stressed out in my entire life as as I was uh, during that time. And there was so many moments where I was like, is this should not be this hard. Like it should not be this hard because everyone around me is saying anti-racism is important, but no one around me is is giving me what I need. Um, and that was really challenging. Yeah, I can imagine. Thank you for sharing that. I think for people who are setting up similar projects but work in the charity sector will really resonate with that. You know, everyone sort of is happy to to cheers good initiatives in the pub, but you know, what what are they actually doing about it? Yeah. Do you think there's a piece on holding each other to account that that we're that 
I don't, I don't know if good finance is, is the right sort of place for it or if it if it needs to be across everywhere else. But there is a thing on, you know, we don't know which funders are responding. You know, if you go to an interview and they don't tell you if you got the job afterwards, it's pretty disheartening. And I, you know, you wouldn't want to work there afterwards. But mm-hmm. we don't have that same level of accountability uh, with funders, programme managers, etc no you're right we don't and I think it is a really big challenge um I think for me personally what's been really interesting is because I'm now someone that runs a social enterprise it also makes me approach my job at Kid Finance completely differently um so I I know that I'm probably about 500% more challenging in my role than I was two years ago um and I'm a lot lot more kind of um direct I think with uh we should be doing this we shouldn't be doing this this is not okay but I think you know, it needs to be a wider thing across the sector is how are we actually holding ourselves accountable, but also being honest about the disconnect and the gaps that we have. Um, and something that I think quite often is that in a lot of organisations, right, there's a lot of good intent and there's a lot of um, nice people wanting to do good and good intent. But actually, a lot of the time, that's not enough. Um, and it needs to be backed with education and action and accountability um and it needs that needs to be a collective thing that we all do because it's also really exhausting being the person that's always challenging um and that needs to be like a really collective thing and I think that's that's where like you know the term allyship is really important because that is and it is something that I, I see more and more I think is um actually everyone kind of doing it in a collective collective manner and I hope I hope that that's the direction that we're going. Hmm. I'm just going to ask one more question on the sort of diversity and and looking back at your kind of investment committee. Do you think there's um, particular questions if you were interviewing someone to be part of an investment committee? Mm. What are the questions that you would want them to be asking? I guess one of the things that I would want someone to say is, you know, how do I declare my biases? You know, for me, like if it's a women's led organisation, I know I'm going to be leaning towards it. Yeah. Um, so I'd have to make make that known that, you know, that's something that someone needs to challenge me on, on why I think they they would need investment. Things like that, you know, how could someone hold themselves accountable and how would they portray that? It's a great question because I think on the term of biases, um, you're you're so right. Like your your biases do definitely influence um what you think and they can be positive and negative, right? So in the same way for you as it is it might be um a women's led organization for for me, anything in the anti-racism space. I'm more likely to be drawn to because that's like where I personally have a lot of affinity Mm. um and I think alongside being aware of your biases and this is why I think it's really important that investment committees are committees because it's no one person making a decision in isolation which is where that kind of group accountability is really important um but I also think another one is being aware of your lived experiences um and how they may influence how you feel about something but also the the insight and the knowledge that you bring because you do have that lived experience and I think this all the time right because there are so many so many different lived experiences that we all hold and something that I think about constantly is what lived experiences does does this person have that I am not aware of because at, at any given point, you might be speaking to someone that has, I don't know, experienced domestic violence or has uh, lost someone to a chronic illness um, or has experienced poverty in, in their lifetime. You don't necessarily know. And for someone to have that lived experience 
they have an understanding and an expertise that they bring and they will be able to ask questions because they have that so they'll be able to really interrogate and take a critical lens to how solutions are presented but on the flip side is how are you respectful um of that and how are you also aware of like the limitations and i think i think there's a lot of nuance there and i don't know if there's there's a right um answer but i think also ultimately you know a lot of these decisions will be made on the basis of, of the information that you're given which is everything from governance to company accounts to the whole due diligence process um, and everyone's going to have a different lens and a different take on it but ultimately those decisions will be made collectively and and with a lot of other you know information that, that you're given I don't know if I've answered your question but it was a good. it was a very poorly pieced together question on my part um <laughs> so to have such such an articulate answer I'm very impressed I'm going to get in with a question before Murphy gets another one in um the I wanted to roll back a little bit you talked about the, the sort of personal toll that it had on you yeah sort of setting up Spark and Co running oh. good finance I was at that pressured time what would be your advice to other people because we've got a lot of sort of social entrepreneurs that listen that are, are at that sort of startup stage or pre-startup some people listening yeah. um, what would be your advice to to those individuals that are sort of just starting out on this this journey genuinely I think my advice would be that it is okay to center yourself and center what you need and what you want from your life which is I don't think we do that enough because I think that there is this thing of I want to make change and I want to make change as effectively and on as large scale as I can and sometimes it stops you thinking about things like okay but maybe I also want a house and that means I need to get a mortgage and that means I need to have stable income and that means I need to do risk myself or you know longer term it maybe I want to have kids and that means maternity leave and does does my small startup social enterprise provide that I think it is really okay to think about yourself to center yourself and what you want and what you need and to go from there and de-risk yourself as much as possible because I think so my husband will quite often make fun of me because he calls me the queen of having your cake and eating it too and I think that you know I'm genuinely if you had told me 10 years ago that I would be where I am now I wouldn't have believed you but I am truly in a situation where I work part-time um for good finance running a project that I really love most importantly with an incredible team and with an organization that supports my development but also gives me stability and it gives me a salary and it gives me uh, you know sick leave when I need it and on the flip side of that I also run a social enterprise in an area that I'm hugely passionate about that somehow in the last two years has turned over £250,000 and it, it is it, it, I love it like I really love it but in the middle of all of that I have managed to get married and, and buy a house and I think it is really important to centre yourself because if there is no you and if you're not happy and if you're not fulfilled none of the rest of it happens either and I've learned that lesson the hard way too many times, I think. And I think it's taken me to get to like 32 years old to be like, <laughs> actually ish, it's okay to want all of these things. And, you know, I'll still occasionally get like someone on my board that says, but why don't you go full time? Or, 
you know, well, well, why don't we like do another fundraising round? And I've had to really consciously be like, no, it's okay. We're going to go slow. And this is how it's going to be because it's, it's the thing that I love and I trust myself to lead it. And this is how I'm going to lead it. And I think that's just a really important thing to rem- remember is that if there's no you, there's no impact either. And, and for there to be you, you, you have to centre yourself in some of these decisions. Brilliant answer. That's fantastic. Um, uh, really good to have you on today. It's been such a fascinating conversation. I could have, I could have deviated. I've done well, haven't I, Murphy? I could have deviated <laughs> yeah. at so many points into, into conversations that would take us away from the podcast theme. So it's been really good. And what I quite like is we haven't asked our normal questions because the things you've said have made Murphy and I think, okay, let's ask about something different and it's been really good talking with you this morning no, i really really enjoyed it and thank you for asking me Links, where do people find out more about good finance spark and co social media for yourself let's have that so for all things social investment you head to www.goodfinance.org.uk and the website is packed full of interactive tools and investor directory lots of videos and if you want to explore and understand the world of social investment then definitely head to good finance if you want to understand more about spark and co then sparkandco.co.uk for for all things um, anti-racism thank you for listening please subscribe for more episodes you can also follow us on twitter at this much underscore we know or email us this much we know at homelesslink.org.uk 